welcome to the death panel to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pre-order health communism or request it at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore before we get started uh we have some quick housekeeping yeah so you may have noticed the episode title for this particular episode is uh missing the thing that we usually do which is to say uh something like with jules gill peterson because Mm -hmm. jules is here um and that's because we have an announcement to make jules welcome to the death panel officially Thank you. It um it already feels so different. Um, I'm really trying to to you know feel the gravitas of this moment. Now I'm very very excited and genuinely just like honored to get to to get to play more of a role in something that I have learned so much from and through which I've gotten to meet so many amazing people, including both of you. Um, so thank you for for thinking of me and for extending some some trust to my perhaps famous penchant for going off and, and just absolutely <laughs> <laughs> losing losing it um, on on previous episodes of Death Panel. Well, it's an honor to have you join the panel, Jules. Yeah, we're, extre- we're extremely excited about this. Um, there's slightly more housekeeping, though. So as you may be sort of getting from this, the Death Panel is expanding. So Jules is joining the show which we're, as we said, extremely excited about. So this is the first one where, you know, Jules is on as a member. Official, official. Also joining the show is Abby Cardis. Yeah. Um, Abby is just off frame laughing too. Um, <laughs> but uh, Abby and Jules are joining the show. Um, that doesn't mean suddenly that Death Panel is going to be a show where like every episode is five people, though. We're basically thinking of this as like we're going to be distributing our strengths here, as it were. We're increasing our ensemble cast, uh, but so just sort of bear with us as we transition into this new era. In general, though, we're extremely excited to make this announcement. It's been a long time coming, and honestly, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say this to you, Jules, specifically since you're here. I couldn't think of anyone, but like, I, I we wouldn't just expand the show for no reason, basically. <laughs> um, I couldn't think of anyone I'm more excited to collaborate with. Absolutely. Oh, well, that feeling is is very, very, very mutual. And, you know, there are days when I think that there are too many, like, aggregate minutes of Jules Gill Peterson podcasting just, like, out in the ether. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that being said, when, when I think about, you know, the things that I'm just sort of overjoyed to 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 come into and to spend more time on, the death panel right right at the top of that list so thank you and as you expand the ensemble cast thanks for making sure that trans women are played by trans women you know i just <laughs> i'm thank you for not bringing a jared leto um method actor you know kind of performance uh to to the role of me <laughs> oh my god yes he wishes he wishes no but all joking aside, it's it's very exciting and obviously big thank you to all of the Death Panel patrons who have supported the show and helped us really be able to push and expand what we can do. Couldn't have done it without you guys, so thank you all. So moving on to the topic for today's episode, though. Recently, you may have seen a few headlines, some posts, maybe some stories here and there. Um, it hasn't gotten a ton of heavy coverage, but in early August... 
there was a court case decision that meant that a diagnosis of gender dysphoria can now qualify someone for protections under the ADA. And there's a much bigger story here, both about the details and the political economic dynamics involved, you know, what this means, what the ADA even means as an administrative and political framework as at the core of this conversation as well. And this is a really complex situation with an even more complicated history of how exactly it got so messy and why exactly things are the way they are. And so we wanted to talk about it because this is a really nuanced issue. And the bottom line is that there's so much more here and so much more at play than the top line takeaway of, quote unquote, dysphoria is now covered by the ADA. Right. Yeah. So part of what we're going to talk about today is how this happened, uh, what it means that gender dysphoria was recognized in an ADA lawsuit as a qualifying impairment, what the arguments for and against it were you know, why trans people were specifically and deliberately excluded from the ADA during its initial passage uh, in the first place, and what this might mean for the future of movements for disability and trans liberation and justice. I mean, it's honestly hard to think of a more perfect first episode to have you join as a full panel member, Jules, because we really have a huge, messy narrative to untangle today. Right? I mean, you know, put put your tinfoil hats on, folks. It seems that the the Fourth Circuit really wanted me to to join this um, to join the death panel, and so they obviously <laughs> issued this decision as pure bait uh, to get me in. And it actually is, though. Like, you know, kidding aside, it really is. I mean, I know we're all living in like you know sort of bizarro liberalism land, you know, since forever, obviously, in the United States, but especially in the last few years with all of the newfound feelings we have about the judiciary. But um, in this kind of weird environment where on the one hand, like by far the most rock solid conservative pro-trans Supreme Court decision ever. Bostock v. Clayton came out like just two years ago, but also obviously that same Supreme Court you know, does as it pleases um, with regards to the way it runs its business. Otherwise, this is one of those other really weird decisions, right, where it gets handed down and it's like, oh, weird. That's like one of the most substantial revisions to like how trans people are treated under federal law that we've like ever seen. Okay. You know, <laughs> like, like there's something sort of helpful about the mood right now because it's, you know, I think it really undercuts like any sort of silly um, optimism or superficial optimism that people might have. But it's like, it's also just, I will say, I don't know if both of you felt this way. I read like a decent amount of legal opinions in my day job. This is one of the weirdest legal opinions I've ever read. Like it's really trying so hard. And like on the top of my printed out copy, I wrote a slogan um, for, <laughs> for the decision and the slogan, which, you know, maybe we could get to um, unpacking is in taxonomy, we trust because this decision (laughs) really believes that if a word changes, well, honey, there goes the law right along with it. I think that's a really good way to frame it because ultimately a lot of what's at play in this situation is that explicitly at the time that the ADA was passed, um, trans people were excluded among um, a couple different other things that were, uh, to quote uh, activists at the time, just uh, included in four pages of copy paste from the DSM-3 that were just sort of submitted as this last minute move to try and exclude things that were 
you know, seen by conservative uh, senators as being kind of morally suspect and therefore not um, not sort of deserving within the scope of the ADA framework. And so part of what has happened in this decision is that and this happened in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which means that it's basically not binding across the United States yet. It's binding in the states that are covered by that court, which is Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. But the idea is that this decision in Williams v. Kincaid, which basically is pushed back on this original limiting of the ADA to explicitly and deliberately exclude trans people, basically on moral grounds, um, if you look back to the comments made at the time, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later. But the idea is that now this this decision, even though it's limited to the Fourth Circuit Court, it is an existing precedent that overturns basically this framework that has been in place since the beginning of the ADA, since it was passed. Well, and I think considering the current makeup of the Supreme Court, we can't necessarily assume that this is going to be, you know, any sort of binding standard going forward. Obviously, you know, it's entirely possible. But I think that basically one of the, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this is because actually, I mean, one thing that I think has gone unaddressed so far in this conversation is like, okay, so if you've seen coverage of this, for example, and I think even if you look at some of the reaction that happened among, for instance, certain uh, disability rights activists, Mm -hmm. um, there was this kind of like clapping moment of like, yeah, we were expanding the, you know, the definition of disability. And now like now trans rights are under the umbrella of disability too. And that's not exactly what uh, happened here, nor is that exactly, yeah. nor is that, I think, the goal here. And so it's important to really state, uh, I think, early in this conversation and get this out of the way this ruling is not stating that categorically trans people are disabled, that transness is a impairment, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's it's helpful because, you know, obviously it's a it's a court decision, so there's a lot of legalese, but, um, I have to say when I when I you know printed out the decision I was like I'm just going to you know going to guess for a second. I wonder what this case is about. And I was like I bet it's about I bet it's about a black trans woman in prison because it it always is and it it is. Um so you know it's about um Keisha Williams who is imprisoned in Virginia um and who brought suit because both because she was deliberately housed with uh, you know, a male inmate population exposing her to a lot of harassment and danger, including, you know, physical assault from uh, jail or excuse me, from prison officials, right? And then she was also denied uh, access to her hormones by the clinicians at the prisons, even though she had transitioned 15 years prior to all of this, right? Um, and so, yeah, the what the the decision does is that it doesn't um, actually say that like, well, yeah, all trans people are legally defined as the disabled or, you know, legally qualify as experiencing an impairment under the ADA. It makes this very specific kind of uh, claim, which is that gender dysphoria, um, you know, which for for all of our fans of gender dysphoria, you know, is like the current sort of diagnostic regime that kind of maybe sort of depathologizes being trans, right? Gender dysphoria is not um, a diagnosis that you are trans, right? Gender dysphoria is just an experience of distress. 
due to incongruence between who you feel yourself to be and how you're either perceived or how you, you know, experience your physical body. Um, and that's something that trans people can experience, right? And this is um, something that the court really picks up. So it, the court does not say all trans people qualify as disabled. It says that a lot of trans people experience gender dysphoria and gender dysphoria qualifies under the ADA um, as grounds for a reasonable accommodation, which therefore this Virginia prison failed to provide. Uh, and, and there are some other legal matters that kind of come up that are a little more in the weeds, but um, that's the main thing. And so that's why, you know, we sort of said there's a big distinction because when the ADA was passed, um, friend of death not death panel, but friend of deaths, uh, Jesse Helms, the senator, mm-hmm. um, you know, who is the person, one of the two senators who introduced this amendment that, like you said, kind of ripped some verbiage straight out of the DSM and plugged it in, specifically excluded trans people by excluding gender identity disorder. And then again, for anyone who is just absolutely addicted to, to memorizing um, diagnostic categories in 1990, <laughs> that was what the DSM considered to be like the diagnosis trans people would generally receive, gender identity disorder. Um, And that was a a more pathologizing uh, kind of diagnosis insofar as it basically implied a disorder, it implied a kind of um, mental illness. And so gender dysphoria doesn't really imply that, right? Like there's nothing disordered about being trans. Uh, You know, if you take the DSM, really at face value, which who knows why anyone would, but of course this court does. So <laughs> so the whole point of the decision, right, is that the court is sort of like, aha, it's true. Congress specifically said no trans people under the ADA in the same sentence as it said, no pedophiles, mm-hmm. um, right. which was, you know, really one of those beautiful high tide moments uh, for, for legislative rhetoric. Yeah, they want to make sure that it's like, uh, you know, a lot of people have written about this as like the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act has a moral code. So it's sort of this list. Right. Of, actually, I would love to read the list. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of saying, <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so here here's a bunch of uh, things that we're just so concerned about people calling mm. impairments and then saying that they have civil rights protections for this impairment. But we just think that these people are fucking perverts. So like, uh, here's here's the list of like people that we won't, qualify it's um i'm gonna read again i don't some of this term this is this is like the language that is is not an endorsement yeah reading is not an endorsement of this terminology uh uh so here are the groups that are excluded one uh transvestitism transsexualism pedophilia exhibitionism voyeurism gender identity disorders not resulting from physical impairments or other sexual behavior disorders, two, compulsive gambling, kleptomania, or pyromania, three, psychoactive substance use disorders resulting from current illegal use of drugs. Yeah. What a beautiful, thoughtful list. Thanks, America. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's ugly. It's it's gross. You know, it's it's this framing that's incredibly deliberate. And we'll get into some of the kind of backstory of how this worked its way in. But in in one sense, part of what this decision argues is that because there has been this shift in diagnostic categories, that gender identity disorder is no longer the, um, you know, DSM definition that's being put on people's insurance forms that's being actually right. used on codes that 
that now because there's a distinct difference between gender identity disorder and gender dysphoria, and that those are sort of categorically different things, and that as Jules is saying, one sort of like an identity-based construction, like about uh, trans people categorically, and the other one's more about distress and a sort of experience that can come for purportedly sort of all sorts of reasons. What whether that's used in practice, like for things that are beyond people that are trying to, you know, get coverage for insurance coverage for transition related care. You know, that's like a, a whole mm-hmm. other discussion. Right. But categorically, like what the main argument is here is that. This is not just a mere linguistic shift, but that this, these are two categorically different things. Right. That that the that when the decision was made to basically remove gender identity disorder from the DSM and put gender dysphoria into the DSM, uh, whether that was done to just replace it or whether that's just like they just added this new thing that because that's no longer the current terminology and that there is a significant, as you said, like diagnostic or um because that's not the current, you know, uh, as Jules said, taxonomy, right? Mm-hmm. That um, now this is something that can be argued and can be protected as uh, like under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Because it's no longer specifically apparent. because the thing that's yeah. specifically named as being disqualifying of ADA coverage has been removed from the DSM. And of course, to try and defend itself, the prison uh, and the people like who worked for the prison were saying, oh, no, these are categorically the same thing. And that what happened between the DSM three and the DSM five was actually that gender identity disorder was replaced with gender dysphoria. And this is a mere linguistic shift and that the, you know, original intent, I mean, you you literally are seeing them basically apply the originalism framework to a law um, passed yeah. in 1990, <laughs> which is hilarious. And they're essentially saying, you know, that um, the original at- intent of the ADA was to categorically and morally exclude trans people and that therefore this kind of diagnostic shift is not too different uh, taxonomies, that they're essentially just a, uh, a rebrand of the exact same word, which is why they argue this is, you know, not two different things, but just a shift. And essentially what happened is that what the decision said ultimately was that um, it rejected this argument that this was merely a linguistic shift and reinforced the idea that these are two sort of separate diagnostic frameworks. Yeah, it's it's weird. Okay, like this is really (laughs) weird. I'm just saying like as someone who, you know, knows too much about this, you know, history of diagnosis, I was reading this decision and I was just like, what is happening? I mean, the, I think I think two two points that are really helpful to contextualize is that one, this is the district court that decided in favor of Gavin Grimm, um, who was, you know, a trans teenager who was denied access to restrooms at school. And it was like a really major trans civil rights protection. And, you know, you sort of see the judge being like, as as we said before, when we were being pro-trans, right? So this this district court is like really trying to build up a body of pro-trans jurisprudence, right? So obviously it's like working hard. Um, but then the other thing that I think really seems to pay off, right, is that like on the one hand, it's like, this is so weird because the ADA like very literally tried to keep trans people out in the grossest way possible. Um, mm-hmm. But silly Congress in 2008 amended the ADA to instruct Um, courts to interpret disability as generously or as they say liberally as possible and so the court keeps being like well we actually have to be as liberal as possible and therefore 
you know, if we've decided that changing the phrase gender identity disorder or replacing it to gender dysphoria means something powerful, then, you know, something very real, then we can just make that kind of generous interpretation, right? And that's sort of the grounds on which the decision takes place. Um, But it's so funny because I, I can't remember the last time this has ever happened to me where I read the main decision and I was like, okay, like law is weird and is all about sort of reasoning your way into whatever you want to say, but like, okay. And then I read the dissent um, who's sort of like agrees with only a little bit of the decision, but basically is like trans people seem like whatever. Who am I to say if they're good or bad people? Um, I don't know anything about them, but as a matter of law, I cannot follow along this argument. It makes no sense. Congress clearly doesn't like trans people and, you know, we're not allowed to override that. And I was like, I mean, look, I'm not getting involved in your internal squabbles, legal people. I think your whole business is like very suspect on arrival. But I was like, this is what happens, right? Like, like this worship of the DSM. And there's like, you know, all this citing of, hey, WPATH. Remember the thing mm-hmm. that our friend Emily Babylon loves so much? Um, and like, there's also all this citation, basically, of all the stuff you would expect, like, some very interesting research that suggests that maybe being trans is biologically determined, which could make it, therefore, you know, a physical, physiological condition. Like all of these things that just like are impossible because the way that Western medicine and psychiatry have defined being trans are so illogical and contradictory. It's like actually really hard to make them do things in the world, kind of all come home to roost. And like, it's just really interesting to watch like a judge earn their six figure salary by trying to do the the mental gymnastics it takes. And, and then I think, you know, I mean, you know, part of what part of what I think really matters here, too, is like, what is the relief being sought here, right? We have a Mm -hmm. trans woman who's in prison (laughs) and like she's, she's, you know, wisely, I think, strategically employing the ADA to seek some basic relief from severe danger, harm that she's in every single day. And like, you know, I just like, you know, you can ask any trans woman, you know, you know, whether or not she's had an experience with incarceration, one of the biggest fears I think of being incarcerated is that not is not just that you know you're going to be housed in the wrong population, which puts you at a staggering, staggering risk for being assaulted. Like the 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 judge actually cites a study that shows that, you know, since the passage of the Prison um, Rape Elimination Act, on average, you know, the average incarcerated person, you know, about four percent of them are unfortunately sexually assaulted in this really violent, harmful institution. But among trans women, that number is 60%, the vast majority, right? And it's like, so you know that that's a big fear, but I think also one of the other just absolutely macabre, like, like existential, truly disturbing fears, and it happens all the time, is that if you get locked up, you're absolutely going to be forcibly detransitioned for Mm -hmm. no reason, just because that's part of the cruelty of American mass incarceration. And so it's so wild that like, obviously the, the judgment, like the court decision has nothing to say about whether it's harmful to incarcerate in general, right? Right. Let Mm -hmm. alone whether it's harmful to incarcerate, you know, black trans women or trans women of color who are wildly disproportionately incarcerated. Um, And, you know, it's sort of it gets it it becomes really uncomfortable in the part of the decision where they're reviewing this, you know, one of the charges that um, Williams brought against 
prison officials was that they engaged in gross negligence, mm-hmm. um, you know, by by putting her in the male population based on a really aggressive, invasive, and I would argue sexually assaulting kind of um, physical exam. And you just watch this judge be like, well, is it wrong to categorize people based on their genitals? Who is to say? But under Virginia <laughs> law, it's probably fine because it shows some degree of care. And for you to have exercised gross negligence in Virginia, you have to have shown no care. Absolutely none whatsoever. So if you have a harmful policy designed to hurt trans women, that shows some care probably. But then actually, I mean, the judge actually thinks that probably they did engage in gross negligence. But still, it's just like you get to this point in the decision where you've sat through all the weird DSM like taxonomic, you know, slates of hands. And then you just get to the part where it's like, hmm, how do we put trans people in jail in prison? So <laughs> difficult. We've got to, we've got to figure this out. But literally the court is like, <laughs> we don't know how to do it. But the point is they probably did it a little bit in a mean way. And it's like, oh my God, this person has been put through hell. Hell. Yes, and and this is just hell. like the predominant condition that trans people, especially trans women, experience when they're incarcerated. And it's just really like, you get to that point and you're like, wow, we're really doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, again, it's like, talk about hollow victories. Like the ADA provides some measure of attenuation of a form of violence that's already taken place. It's such a good example of like how reactive like the ADA legal model is, right? It can Mm -hmm. only come clean up messes that have already happened. It doesn't do really anything kind of proactive. Um, and so in that sense, it's it's really kind of chilling. Absolutely. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that what the prison in Virginia did was that they detransitioned uh, Williams to torture her, ultimately. Yes. Um, yes. They did, you know, there was a nurse that made some determination uh, in this exam that she was going to sort of take this upon herself to make sure that, like, Williams was put in the proper place, you know, quote unquote, within the prison. And then there were like deliberate decisions made on behalf of the warden and the guards and the medical staff to torture her by detransitioning her, by depriving her of hormones for two years. And beyond that, right, like these kind of frameworks, um, the, basically the, the fight that happened uh, in the courts prior to this decision was essentially talking about this issue of like, well, was this torture, this forced detransition torture, was that a reasonable degree of care or not? And actually the court that the court decision that this decision overturned had agreed with the prison and said, yep, this torture was a reasonable amount of care. This was a reasonable attempt to provide care and this was not negligent. And so in that respect, I think that that's actually the sort of most purely positive takeaway from this decision is that it does sort of push back on actually these frameworks that um, are frequently used to deny prisoners and incarcerated people their their rights uh, in the courts when they're trying to, again, reactively often try and seek remediation for it. But the thing, you know, that's so frustrating is that, as Jules mentioned, there was a chance to there was a chance to revise the ADA and to update this definition. And the ADA's definition was updated in this process in 2008 when they you know, did this big overhaul. But one of the things that they did during that process is they said, well, this process isn't actually about 
expanding the ADA. It's about restoring it to its original intent because it had been so restricted by the courts over the years since it was passed that they were like, the whole point is we're not expanding this. We're not asking for handouts. We're just restoring it or something. You know, we're just bringing it back to what Congress wanted. And because Congress, again, thank you, Jesse Helms, explicitly wanted trans people excluded and barred from any ADA remediation or any, you know, protections under the ADA as a potentiality, that that was the original intent of the law and that that needed to be maintained in this restoration and update of the ADA. Well, and I think this is where it's important to say, too, like there's obviously there's uh, there's a lot of complexity here. There are a lot of, you know, nuances possible in this. I mean, just even hearing uh, not only the specifics of the case, but also some of the stuff uh, as we'll get into about the limitations of the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, which not only what we'll talk about here, but we've we've talked about this frequently on the show. This is why I think regardless of whether it's like, okay, good, like we've um, done what people call extending the disability frame, right, to include mm-hmm. civil rights protections for people with gender dysphoria, right? We can celebrate that or not or, or whatever, but I think the actual thing at issue here is that we have categorically refused to actually institute any kind of real protections for transgender people at all Mm -hmm. in in law. I mean, and obviously if there are huge problems with civil rights laws that don't just stop at the, you know, nitpicking that we can do about the ADA, uh, right? So many of them are reactive. So many of them have to do more with like participation in the workforce or your, your value as a worker, or, you know, your, your right to be incarcerated in a certain way as we're as we're talking about but you know we could imagine this being not a necessary argument at all because we could also imagine that we could i don't know proactively affirm the rights of trans people not just say okay we need to sort of like add around the margins gender dysphoria to being something that could be covered under the americans with disabilities act Right. Absolutely. And it's important to note that the the ADA's trans exclusion is not this is not some sort of uh, exceptional bad uh, moment in the sort of history of the 80s and 90s politically within the United States. This is actually part of a, a over 25 you know year campaign um, by a group of senators to deliberately and systematically write in exclusions for trans people. And so this started through, you know, going through like housing protection laws and going through different laws and seeing how can we explicitly restrict these definitions to make it so that the sort of um, de facto position of the U.S. government is to essentially say that for its like welfare support programs, for its, you know, uh, framings of who is deserving of aid or care or pity, even that trans Mm -hmm. people should be excluded um, categorically. Like, again, this was made on moral grounds. And, you know, there were several conservative uh, senators who were senior senators in the Senate, and they were on a crusade to strip any and all legal protections, um, specifically within the sort of realm of things that were medical criteria or medical conditions or taxonomies or any kind of procedures that were closely associated with trans people in general. And the ADA is actually part of this fight to try and essentially primarily um, put it put the like official position uh, down on the books that like trans people are not welcome within the United States. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is a really, you know, there's something 
so helpful about just how dramatically limited this case is. Because, you know, on the one hand, it's true that sort of the arc of the mainstreaming of trans identity, but to some extent, just a lot of trans politics have actually kind of historically, or at least let's say since the 1970s, have been at best very evasive about um, alliance and affinity with disability activism and at worst like openly hostile right and and it's sort of this chain of succession where you know in the early 1970s you know gay and lesbians succeed speaking of the dsm in getting homosexuality removed right so homosexuality is declassified it's no longer a mental illness in 1973 and it disappears from the following dsm um, but one of the ways that gays and lesbian activists who pulled off that decision sort of like managed to pull it off is like a lot of the sort of pathologizing, you know, force is redirected to trans people because it's the following uh, edition of the DSM that introduces our favorite gender identity disorder that we're talking about right now. Um, um, but then there has been this sort of reaction amongst trans politics to be like, well, you know, trans people aren't mentally ill or let's be more specific, being trans is not a mental illness. It's not like right. it's, there's nothing sick about it. Right. Um, and you know, that sort of maybe has kind of a lot of political currency in the LGBT movement, but it's often been used to sell out just sort of natural alliances with disability activists, never mind overlap. Right. It's like just still such a big problem to be a trans person and have anything else going on with your body or mind or soul. It's like so disqualifying. Um, and so there has been this kind of like kind of anti-disability strain of trans organizing or trans identity politics, I would say, right? And, 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 and part of that is sort of like, you know, the vexed situation of like, how do you depathologize things in the United States without actually reinforcing, you know, the, the oppression of disabled people? But then on the other hand, right, like here we see how it's like, well, a closer affinity between trans and disability in a rights framework is sort of just like not very helpful. <laughs> like that's not the that's not the convergence we're looking for between trans right. and disability politics. Right. Because it's like, you know, there's this point in the decision where the judge is like making sure we understand that gender dysphoria is a physical impairment, like which is like literally based on like nothing in terms of evidence as far as I, in, in my expert opinion, it's based on nothing. And the judge is like, Williams um, does not merely allege that gender dysphoria may require physical treatment, such as hormone therapy. She maintains that her gender dysphoria requires it. Like very standard line. And it's like, yeah, for sure. Like trans people say stuff like that all the time when we need to, to get what we need. It's just like absurd when you stop and be like, this woman is in prison, you right. know? And like, again, it's not just that it was like, LOL, she just like wants her hormones. It's like, no, they were taken away from her. As you rightly said, Beatrice, like it as a, as a form of torture, as a yeah, form of, of violent suppression, it's deliberate, it's intentional, it's insidious. Right. And it's like, here we are in this situation where, you know, obviously the depathologizing, you know, part of my brain is like, this is all very conservative and silly because it's like, she, what, like she had been a biological woman for a very long time. You don't just get to like, take that away from people. It's like, you know, it's just like, it's really weird. But then on the other hand, it's like, oh, wait a minute, what's actually happening in this prison and this sort of limited rights ADA framework? Like, 
it only addresses like the tip of the proverbial iceberg of harm and it's like well everything else going on is fine <laughs> and it's like cool so like making the prison like a little less tortury for trans women like reinforces the rightness of incarcerating this person and you know also just kind of you know again like takes steam away from a much bigger conversation about like what would autonomy um, and, you know, freedom look like broadly conceived for people in the United mm-hmm. States yeah. if, if, if your ability to live wasn't predicated on access to private care, right? Because even, even in a prison, which is publicly funded, it's still privatized. It's neoliberal care. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, private health insurance, same issue. Like, you know, what, what is going on when, like, the basic building blocks of life are gatekept from people? And then also it's like, P.S. Like, don't step out of line or we will literally lock you up and then withdraw those things from you. And it's like, well, congratulations, you know, when a court gives the blessing to return like one one hundredth of what was taken away. And it's just like, really, really? For, this is and for like, one person conditionally. For one on, person. Yeah. I know. Right. That's right. I mean, it's just there's a tragedy, you know, brewing in this decision. It's really, really, really hard to stomach in that way. And the thing that's really important to underscore is that this, some people I think have, don't totally know the sort of full history of how diagnostic categories have factored into disability law in the United States. And and I, mm. I get that because part of the problem is that there are over 86 different definitions of disability used at the federal level within the United States. If you start looking state to state to get a count of how many different you know, frameworks we have for deciding who counts and who doesn't count as disabled, it gets overwhelming. And so with all these kinds of inabilities to police borders um, around who is worthy disabled and who's unworthy as as that, uh, you know, sort of identity goes as it's constructed by the state, right? One of the things that I think people have sort of talked about this as is that it's almost like, oh, here's this sort of revolutionary expansion of what it means to be disabled towards a kind of recognition of sort of a a broader social model framework, saying that like, well, you know, prison is disabling and prison is additionally disabling for trans people when they are tortured by having their hormones taken away. And that's one way that you can think of this. But that's actually a misread of what's going on and what the court is saying Mm. and what's what's happening. And it's not an expansion. It's actually a return to a pre-existing medical understanding of transness and disability that was how the Rehabilitation Act um, from the 1970s actually framed it. And under the Rehabilitation Act, um, trans people were included in the group of sort of people who could uh, sue for any sort of um, remediation, particularly when it came to being denied employment because of their trans identity. Under the Rehabilitation Act, there were two very famous Cases in the 80s, one was um, a postal worker basically came out to her supervisor and announced her intention to transition and the U.S. Postal Service fired her and uh, court ruled that that was, you know, basically that she had been dismissed on uh, the basis of her like medical psychological need and so qualified under the Rehabilitation Act. And so it's had this kind of history, um, transness and disability have also had this history that's like very specifically related to how disability factors into labor discipline and how disability factors into qualifying employment and who counts as a taxpayer and who doesn't. 
And the other case was also having to do with employment as well, which was uh, someone who was trans who was applying for a job at the Department of Treasury. And she had 10 years experience working in a different Treasury office. And when she applied for the job, they took the job listing down and said, we actually don't want to hire anyone because if we hire anyone, we'll be forced to hire this trans woman and we don't want trans people here in the U.S. Treasury. And so it's, it's really interesting because what happened with the ADA and all the advocacy of people like Jesse Helms and William Armstrong, who are, you know, these two conservative senators that we've been mentioning, was that they actually wanted to make sure that businesses did not have to hire trans people, that no one would be forced to hire trans people and that no one be forced to provide care to trans people and no one would be forced to basically, in their mind, facilitate the creation of trans people. And that was deliberately what their goal was. And that's actually what's going on here is not that there's been some sort of social model expansion of disability through this decision that includes the disabling aspects of being denied access to hormone treatment. What what it's actually doing is returning to a medicalization of transness and a medicalization of disability under these kind of older frameworks of using diagnostic criteria as the kind of end-all be-all of who counts. And obviously, there are so many problems with this when you think about that relative to people's access to affordable care in the United States, because it literally Mm -hmm. creates this this sort of two-tiered system where, therefore, the only people who become deserving are those who have access to the diagnosis in the first place, who are able to get into the doctor to be, um, you know, certified with that identity in order to then qualify to, you know, seek their rights in courts again after the fact. Exactly. I mean, thank you for saying that because I think that it actually, you know, interestingly, when you when you take this case and you actually contextualize it, it really helps make a point that I think has been missing um, in the past couple of years as we've all been kind of digesting, including me, digesting the kind of wave of anti-trans legislation and policymaking. You know, there's been so much like sort of like, where did this come from? What is it about, right? Like, how did this happen? This is all unprecedented. And like, yeah, a lot of it is sort of novel, but it's also precedented, right? And it actually is precedented specifically, you know, through the history of medicalization and disability. And there is like this actual you know, policy making effects that really started in the 80s. You know, I think some people, um, you know, sorry if this is something you already know, because it means, you know, too much about Janice Raymond and TERFs. But, um, (laughs) you know, one of the one of the kind of early victories for Janice Raymond and TERFs in the United States and Raymond, you know, by the way, is like basically just like a Catholic theologian, sort of like, you know, dressed up in in feminist clothing in many ways, you know, she had, although she is disavowed and denied that she played this role. So whatever, take from that what you will. But like she played some role in advising, you know, um, you know, governmental bodies, which then rescinded the very, very few um, possibilities for covering transition related care um, under under Medicare um, that had sort of been creeping up in the late 70s. And there were like a couple of states where also private insurers had like been like, okay, maybe we'll cover this. But then by the early 80s, you start to see that just like completely shut down and like re-regulated out of that. And then we have this moment, right, of of the ADA and the exclusion and this, and you know, these early employment cases like you're talking about that really sort of, I think actually in some in some cases are some of the only like bureaucratic and judicial precedents at all about trans people, 
right? There just like aren't that many other ones. And so it's like this stuff has actually been sitting there, right? I I was going to say gathering dust, but that's not true because they've been enforced, right? And it's just like, you know, it made me think, you know, in the 70s, even before those cases, there were, you know, a few other cases, employment cases where someone tried to transition and was fired, Um, like famously someone who was a teacher. And, um, you know, I remember reading in a lot of trans community newsletters that would cover these the legal challenges and stuff, which were all unsuccessful. Um, and a lot of people were just like, wow, that lady has a job. She had a job. She thought she could keep a job when she transitioned. Oh, That's yeah. inc- wow. Like, huh, really makes you think, huh? And it's just like, if that doesn't hit you in the gut, but it, but it just to, yeah. you know, to, to come back to this decision, I will, I will point out. Um, that one of the allegations that Williams sort of has to make in order to play this judicial game is that among other things, the sheriff running the prison, who is, you know, one of the people named in this case, um, you know, one of the harms inflicted on her was preventing her from participating in the prison's workforce program, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. well, why, what, what are the... What are the inducements to participate in a workforce program, right? It's like it shows good behavior um, to become, quote unquote, reformed and be a good worker being paid. You know, I'd have to look up what the situation is in Virginia, right? But you can be paid all the way down to nothing because thank you, 13th Amendment, keeping slavery legal. Um, But, you know, it's like she part of what she was denied was the ability to conform strategically in order to uh, you know mitigate the horror of her prison term right and it's just like again part of what the court is doing in in recognizing that so-called right right this kind of like right to work while incarcerated which is what a perverse sentence is it's reinforcing this notion that you know by welcoming gender dysphoria into the ADA family, right? Part of what it does is suggest that trans people, you know, despite the the kind of concession that they're fundamentally bad or wrong, because look, they're in prison. Look, they're weird and need resources. Look, they want things and get them, right? Um, but the, they, they, they could become productive again, right? Either by being punished, right? Um, mm-hmm. And or by then turning around and working for absolutely exploitative, coercive low wages. Right. And for, you know, you know, I mean, it's just like, I think one of the weirdest, um, not to digress, but one of the weirdest liberal narratives about incarceration, but it's something that I see, like, I didn't encounter this as much growing up in Canada, although it certainly exists. But when I moved to the U S it kind of felt like really jarring to me. It was when people are like, well, you have to like pay your debt to society, you know, because you're, you're (laughs) bad, like you're a criminal, right? You did something bad, which creates a debt which then, you know, you owe society. So you go to prison and then you pay that back. And it's like good to literalize that by working. Right. And it's like, right. I don't think that's how that bill, you know, is, is adds <laughs> up. Like who, who, who owes who what here. Right. And just the idea that like, after all the, the horrors that Williams has endured, right. It's like, well, what part of what really gets this judge riled up is that she was prevented from working, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, Ew, stop. Like, just stop. Shut it down. What is wrong with you? (laughs) And this is why I think it's so important to point out in the first place, again, this, uh, you know, not to like beat this drum too much, but like how inadequate of a framework itself the Americans with Disabilities Act is, Mm -hmm. why it should not necessarily be as it was for, you know, I mean, I think a small segment of people at the very least, like this kind of you know, moment of celebration or like, Oh, look, it's, uh, this is covered under this too. Like, of course, yes, 
this, you know, in this particular case, absolutely, this is totally a Americans with Disabilities Act case, right? This is as the as we're talking about. Even, um, you know, I think the, the the way that you framed so much of this, Jules, even talking about how clearly Williams is having to kind of, you know, contort to the law, basically, mm. and say, like, OK, I'm going to make this argument because this is what the law is. And so I have to make the argument this way. Right. Obviously, all of this is inadequate. Um, and so even talking about this in the context of incarceration and then seeing how it's been portrayed in the, the little press that it. I mean, you know, comparatively in a broad sense, a uh, small amount of coverage that it's generally got, like um, looking at, for example, this Bloomberg Law uh, article that covered it where the headline was, uh, quote, transgender workers rights expanded by gender dysphoria ruling. Right. Um, not only does this this like I think says well, part that's of the just quiet, straight up wrong. Well, right. Way, it's, <laughs> exactly. yeah. That's, that's wrong. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's wrong as a headline. But it also like it, it I think betrays a big uh, part of the, the the thing here, which is, you know, it's the ADA. So much of it is a, a workers' rights thing, or that's at least how we think of it. But then obviously co- totally ignoring, of course, the context of the case and, of course, ignoring mm-hmm. the framework that we're talking about that is that the ADA only, as we have said, it's, you know, good for the one instance, unless you're, you know, someone defending uh, de- defending yourself against an ADA claim, right? Unless you're the state and you win, or you know, the state or a or a company or something, and you win an ADA uh, lawsuit against someone who is suing for a violation of their civil rights, and then it's a precedent that can be carried forward, right? And and also, just quick point, um, one of the things that I think is is also difficult too is that when you see framings like this and headlines like this, like you know, this court decision wins uh, labor protections for (laughs) trans people, right? Like one, obviously it's ignoring the fact that the ADA is a reactive framework, as we've been saying Mm -hmm. over and over. Two, it ignores the fact that any victory under the ADA is a victory only for the person who is suing. It's not a victory for anyone else with the same impairment to be able to access the same um, circumstances. Everything is decided on a case-by-case basis, one at a time. It's incredibly labor-intensive as a legal process on purpose. And the thing, too, is that essentially, you know, what's happening in these these headlines that that frame it as labor protection, some kind of proactive thing, um, is that it reinforces the, frankly, false idea that the ADA provides labor protections in right. any capacity. Right. I mean, that that's that's the thing that to me makes me want to scream is it just reinforces this insinuation that disability law is somehow successful in eliminating labor discrimination. And that's just like the furthest fucking thing from the truth. Also, it occurs to me that if I were going to write a headline right now, I would actually frame this more as uh, court rules that incarceration is impairment. Yes. Right. Yeah. Impairment that would to be work. more accurate. Yep. Like, yes. <laughs> impairment to I mean, work. Yes. Yes. It's just so sad. It's like, you know, trans women have been excluded from the formal labor market. Like since there was a formal wage labor market, this is hashtag one of the arguments I'm making in a book I'm writing right now. <laughs> so like I trust when I say I have receipts, like at the moment wage labor like emerges, you know, as a widespread practice in the US, you know, in the industrial antebellum era, yeah, guess who can't do it? Trans women. And so they get stuck in the informal economy, in the service mm-hmm. economy, working the lowest, lowest, lowest piecework jobs possible, like not even seamstresses and not even 
domestic workers, like, you know, cabaret or like saloon dancers and sex workers, right? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with those jobs, but they are the worst paid jobs possible. And so then here comes the ADA, you know, like, you know, almost 200 years later and is like, I am going to get you into the workforce, honey. And it's like, that is not what trans women are asking for, organizing for. And also like, again, it really matters if that workplace is in a fucking prison. And I just think that like, you know, there, there are so many quotable lines in this decision. And again, I like, you know, we will all forever be cursed by the fact that I used to be an English professor. And so like, I just read things in like a weirdly, I don't know, like intensive way. And there's this line where the the decision is actually quoting a 2021 um, decision, you know, that was uh, in reference to a case in Pennsylvania. But so the court says, our approach today acknowledges that courts typically lack sufficient expertise in physiology, <laughs> etiology, psychiatry, and other potentially relevant disciplines to determine the cause or causes of gender dysphoria. So this is like one of the moments when the court is like, LOL, we do not know what trans people are. Of course, of course not. We don't think about trans people. We don't acknowledge trans people. We wouldn't want to know that much about them because they're a strange, small minority and we don't generally like them and frankly are fine with them being disproportionately locked up. It's just like, you know, sometimes we want to run an Aaron of Mercy playbook because gotta save that juicy, juicy liberalism. And it's like, I just want to think a little bit for a moment about how much work ignorance and like sort of legal, like the dissociation of normative reason, right? To be slightly jargony for a moment. It's like, you know, of course law is performative. Like it has to enact its own logics and make them stick. And that's proves to be a real problem sometimes when courts have like no means to enforce their, their judgments. But, um, but in this case, right. It's like, it's really interesting how, how, I'd like, you know, I would say there's something contemptible about that kind of like proud ignorance, which is like, well, we don't know what trans people are. But of course, if we were to know anything about them, it wouldn't be by asking trans people, it would be by asking psychiatrists, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's like our friends over at the DSM, at one point, you know, the court is like, of course, we take the DSM to be true, um, which like, again, I think you might be the only people on earth who do that, uh, you know, fourth district. But it's like this sort of production of ignorance around trans people in order to coerce them into the liberal project of subservient citizenship and kind of capitalist production um, as the only rubric through which disability can be valued, right? Or just through which human life can even be valued uh, is really, I mean, I think it shows a lot of contempt for trans people people. It shows a lot of contempt for people with disabilities. It just shows a lot of contempt for the idea of transition or the idea of disability. Mm -hmm. um, it's just like, it's it's, it, it's its own kind of hostility dressed up as judicious, as dispassionate, as um, compassionate, actually, because the court, you know, repeatedly is, and then that dissent too, which is like, I don't know a tranny from a transvestite, but my goodness, um, you know, it's like, <laughs> Okay, honey, like, you know, it's like, you know, I was going to say, don't you think we can tell? I hope most people aren't out there reading these decisions because it's like, what what gratification does that bring? But there's just something so, <laughs> I don't know if it's just, again, this moment where like, you know, American liberalism 
is having a pretty bad PR problem, but like its mouthpieces are therefore even more strenuous than ever. Like I'm sure they're all at the time of our recording this weeping for the death of of Her Majesty. And it's like, uh, you know, I just find I feel like that's so illustrative to me about why I just can't take this stuff seriously as relevant to justice because it's like Mm -hmm. it shows it wears on its sleeve its dislike of trans people and disabled people and disabled trans people like it just it's Mm -hmm. just like let me tell you how little i even wanted to deal with this right like i am disgusted it's just that got that big like i'm disgusted vibe right Mm -hmm. and it like it kind of reminds me of um yeah you know one of the decisions they cite obviously very often Bostock v. Clayton, which was a Supreme Court decision that extended some employment protections to gay, lesbian, and trans people in the workplace, which again is like a really interesting decision because it was written by Gorsuch, like a conservative. And so, you know, it's like, it'll be weird and interesting to see what happens with it because it's kind of like a very conservative decision. But when you read that, you watch Gorsuch just be like, well, I don't know what trans people are, but like, I don't think Gorsuch is Southern, sorry. But, you know, like, and then basically be like, but it doesn't matter because trans people experience sex discrimination, which is a perfectly fine legal argument. But again, just this like, the one thing we've always got to do is dismiss who these people are, what they know about their lives, the circumstances and harms through which they come to us in the first place and come back to those good old glorious American touchstones of this statutory principle, you know, this and that, right? And it's always this model of assimilation that's like, what if we took people who have been harmed by the order of things, stripped away everything that made them vulnerable in the first place, and then say, now we found a way to include you. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, I wonder why that doesn't work out for all of us. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, Mm -hmm. it's so, it's just so smug and smarmy. And like, in some ways I was sort of glad that this decision didn't get like a huge wave of media coverage because I was like, I can't, I cannot listen to like, you know, glad go on you know in a press release about this and that right like it would just be so exhausting um and i have no energy left for that kind of energy yeah for that kind of vibe but yeah i don't know there's just something so like icky about about the rhetoric absolutely and i mean especially in the context of understanding um why these three remember three exclusions exist in the ada for trans people Mm -hmm. you've got this whole list of pedophiles kleptomaniacs pyromaniacs right like you know poor pyromaniacs whatever (laughs) you know and trans people are on there three different ways it's it's like they were trying to create some sort also as a group that appears in another part of the legislative text yet a second time being like just in case you didn't hear us the first time we still we really do not want this as part Mm. of it right it's 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 so Thorough, And this comes after, um, as we were saying, as I was saying earlier, you know, there's a systemic, aggressive campaign spearheaded by Jesse Elms to try and exclude trans people from any and all civil rights protections. Mm -hmm. What happens right before the ADA? He gets trans people explicitly excluded from the Fair Housing Act. That was his that was his warm up, essentially, in order to be able to, like, coordinate uh, conservative pressure and be able to, like, declare that now that they got that fixed, they could not let the ADA pass with this kind of like moral terror built into it. I mean, people were saying like, oh, thank God for Jesse Helms. He just saved the American taxpayer a big headache in 20 years. 
And I want to just be really clear. Um, I want to get into a little bit some of the the context of this exclusion, but I want to be really, really clear um, that what Jules is saying about the aggression and the contempt, that this is not uh, us being sort of uh, looking back at it and saying, oh, well, in retrospect, this was so aggressive. They were so mean to trans mm-hmm. people. No, this was like yeah, it's not subtext, it's text. Aggression. And so I just want to read you um, a comment made by Representative Dan Burton, Republican from Indiana, upon the introduction of the ADA uh, to the House of Representatives, who said, quote, the ADA is the last ditch attempt of the remorseless sodomy lobby to achieve its national agenda before the impending decimation of AIDS destroys its political clout. Their bill simply must be stopped. There will be no second chance for normal America if the ADA is passed. Cool. Thanks, Congress. Uh, would, would that that were true. And just as like a point of order, you know, sodomites experience plenty of remorse. It's just, you know, unrelated to sodomy. But um, wow, no, that really that really gets you there. Right. Absolutely. I yeah. think um, in case I w- there was any doubt. You right. Know. I mean, I want to go through a couple of these things, though, uh, quickly, because while while we're here, I do think it is really important to um, not not just for this case specifically, but also I think in general to understand the intrinsically exclusionary context with which the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act was, you know, ar- was argued mm-hmm. and put into law in the first place. So um, I just have a, a couple of things to go through, actually, that I, I wanted us to address because some of the language when you look at when you look at what's called the legislative history of this bill, when you look at what the um, discussions were both on the Senate floor and in off and on the House floor, too, obviously, and then also in like the offices of the senators uh, staff drafting this and everything like that, um, there are some pretty clear through lines. And uh, I'll say that, first of all, also, obviously, in terms of talking about these sort of like moral boundaries that were written into the ADA, Mm. a lot of this I'm drawing from the scholarship of Ruth Kolker and Kevin Berry, who both have uh, written uh, Mm -hmm. really well about this. But one thing I think to point out is that so contextually, when we're talking about like gender identity disorder, as it was called at the time, being written out of the ADA, part of that came out of like part of the the reason that that came into context in the conversation at all in the in the Senate was partially as be talking about as part of this broader um, push, but also because there was a general sentiment where among a lot of senators um, to begin with, their position was the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA shouldn't really cover mental health conditions at all. Really? Uh, So, for example, Senator William Armstrong, a Republican senator from Colorado, objected to coverage for mental health conditions in uh, the ADA in this way. He said, quote, he could not imagine the sponsors would want to provide a protected legal status to somebody who has mental health disorders, particularly those that might have a moral content to them or which in the opinion of some people have a moral content, uh, saying, quote, that although the ideals of our country certainly call upon the Senate to do whatever it can to be helpful to people in wheelchairs or who have some kind of physical disability or handicap of some sort and who are trying to overcome it, mental disorders such as alcohol withdrawal, delirium, hallucinosis, 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 dementia with alcoholism, marijuana, delusional disorder, cocaine intoxication, et cetera, et cetera, should expect to be excluded uh, Republican Senator Warren Rudman of New Hampshire also uh, 
said this on the Senate floor, quote, a diagnosis of certain types of mental illness is frequently made on the basis of a pattern of socially unacceptable behavior and lacks any physiological basis. In short, we are talking about behavior that is immoral, improper or illegal and which individuals are engaging in of their own volition, admittedly for reasons we do not fully understand. Where we as a people have, through a variety of means, including our legal code, expressed disapproval of certain conduct, I do not understand how Congress can create the possibility that employers are legally liable for taking such conduct into account when making employment-related decisions. Again, this employment frame. Continuing, quote, in principle, I agree with the concept that the mentally ill should be protected from invidious discrimination, just as the physically handicapped should be. However, people must bear responsibility for the consequences of their own actions. Oh. And then finally, just I'm saving the best for last here, Jesse Helms from North Carolina, who we have talked about uh, a couple <sighs> we mentioned a couple times, but it's worth worth contextualizing him for a second. Again, Jesse Helms, the segregationist, Joe Biden's friend in the mm-hmm. Senate, uh, who Ooh. Joe Biden uh, famously joined in supporting an anti-busing law when they were both senators in the 1970s. Uh, content warning, I guess, again, about, as always, whatever, all the stuff that I've been reading, quoting, is like content warning in terms of terminology here. But anyway, Jesse Helms, quote, If this were a bill involving people in a wheelchair or those who have been injured in the war, that is one thing. But how in the world did you get to the place that you did not even exclude transvestites? How did you get into this business of classifying people who are HIV positive, most of whom are drug addicts or homosexuals or bisexuals as disabled? What I get out of all of this is here comes the U.S. government telling the employer that he cannot set up any moral standards for his business by asking someone if he is HIV positive, even though 85% of those people are engaged in activities that most Americans find abhorrent. He cannot say, look, I feel very strongly about people who engage in sexually deviant behavior or unlawful sexual practices. Um, And so essentially um, what what at least Kevin Barry recounts in uh, their history of this is that at first, essentially, like the disability lobby uh, who is there, you know, helping to like disability activists who are there helping to like uh, influence at least some of the text do hold back for like a moment essentially the inclusion of gender identity disorder as a kind of excluded category and then what essentially happens is they they decide because they have this big concern over mental health issues uh or what are seen what are called uh mental health issues etc uh as being protected by the ADA they have um, staffers drop a short list of things that could be excluded. They turn in the list and senators say, literally, this is the quote, uh, quote, I need more. Like, I need a longer list of um, things to be excluded. Bring me more. And this is after, like, Helms had started calling it then, the homosexual rights bill around Congress after, like, blowing up at people uh, during, uh, like, debate over the bill being like, well, are you sure the pedophiles are excluded? Are we right. keeping all of the amoral actors out of there? Uh, so he made, like, a big deal out of this. And so finally, gender identity disorder is excluded specifically by name. And again, as we've mentioned a couple of times in the text as a result of this discourse, I guess, that I have just um, read out. Yeah, if there is any doubt about the sort of blatant uh, and aggressive 
way that this was done, I hope that that's gone because there's nothing about this that was sort of accidental or just, you know, merely, you know, bigoted by the sands of time or I don't know, you know, oh, we just like con consider their actions in perspective. Well, in perspective, what was happening when this bill was framed is that this, uh, you know, framework of the ADA, which was essentially a, a conservative bill, which is important to remember. This is pass passed during the Bush administration, mm -hmm. that it had gone through several revisions to make it more and more friendly to business. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, the idea of it potentially enfranchising trans people as valid workers <laughs> was such a threat that it essentially started this huge moral campaign that threatened the entire bill passing. And basically forced people into this position where they threw trans people under the bus in order to get HIV added into the ADA and in and order to keep it from getting stalled. And were disability advocates who were in, involved in the process caved on it too. Yeah. That, that's one thing that is mm. to, that should be specifically stated. But shout out to that one Senator representative who was like, Mental illness is socially constructed. We just make up these categories <laughs> to punish people for behaviors we don't like, right? It was like, whoa, accidental Foucault entered Congress for a moment. Um, no, it's like, it's so, it's so clarifying to listen to the people tell you exactly what they're doing while they're doing it, right? It's like, there's no, no one's being, no one's being coy. And, and, and in some ways, right, it's like, again, Gosh, Jesse Holmes could have said that yesterday, mm -hmm. you know, with like a few light updates to the nomenclature to reflect, um, you know, how we how we talk today. But um, <laughs> it's it's really just like it's so interesting that, again, I think one of the one of the reasons I find the medicalization of trans people in particular so like worthwhile to think about, much like or actually it's the same reason I also find the medicalization of disability like so, you know, important to think about is that among other things, it reveals how bizarre like the Western, you know, dualistic framework that like tries to draw a hard line between the physical and the so-called mental or psychic or, you know, like just like how much of a series of problems that that generates that actually cannot be solved. Like, what, again, you know, it's a thing that I have talked about on, on the death panel before, but it's like, why is there psychiatric supervision involved in trans healthcare? And why was, why were, why were the, di why are all the diagnoses that trans people need to get care psychiatric, right? Like the healthcare isn't psychiatric. It's physiological, right? It's right. hormones, it's surgeries, it's, um, you know, even things like voice training or, you know, hair removal, those are all physiological, um, you know, interventions. Why is there psychiatric supervision? Is it because there's some sort of, you know, quote unquote, mental component to being trans? No, as we've talked about as beings, um, you know, Velosi talked about too, right? It's like literally just doctors feeling confused, uncertain, and trying to, you know, cover their asses by mobilizing psychiatrists to play doctor cop, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, and it's like, well, that's a really good, I think, example of a much more widespread phenomenon. And sometimes there are these moments of like reinforcement, right, where we see, you know, all of these members of Congress working overtime, right, to sort of use their idea, prejudicial idea of disability and their prejudicial idea of trans people to like reinforce those distinctions, even as they're just falling apart, right, like in real time. <laughs> and and that's sort of like, you know, a masterclass in chicanery. Um, but it also then, again, makes like the idea that 
you know, all these years later, well, not even, that's not that many years later, right? But like 30 years later, we're getting a, a sort of like, you know, we were wrong about a really narrow part of all of that. And we've got to make the trans people work. <laughs> like that's that's the victory here, right? Mm-hmm. But all the rest was totally fine. And like, you know, it's just, it's really... It's really kind of incredible um, and, and just the way that like, again, I think it's it's really kind of illustrative to me that this case, you know, deals with 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 a trans woman who's incarcerated because I feel like that's always the problem is that like when, you know, transness gets isolated as it, it does in this psychiatric um, medicalized model it has to always stand alone. It can't be like co-present with anything else. And like, I think a lot of trans people have had that experience where like, you know, you secure whatever diagnosis you need today. It's gender dysphoria. But like, if you actually have like the need for other forms of mental health care, it's so hard to navigate and negotiate that because any mental health clinician can be like, "Uh Oh, my comorbidity, you know, alarm just went off and you're, and then they become Jesse Helms and they're like, you're a bad person. You're unstable and disgusting and you are not mature enough yet to get access to hormones or surgery. Gosh, where have I heard that line before? You're not Mm. mature enough, Hmm. you know? And it's like this infantilization, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. That has been practiced upon people with disabilities or, you know, through which disability has been weaponized to infantilize people for like literally centuries at this point. And it's like every time there's a sort of like supposed movement forward, it has to tighten and reinforce that legitimate um, you know, state practice of harm or medicalized practice of harm that's based on a house of cards, right? I think mm-hmm. one of the interesting things here is like gender identity disorder. I mean, watching the court be like, this is what it meant in 1990. And it's like, actually, LOL, like go and look at what the fucking DSM was based. I mean, it's just like the most hilariously bad research, right? It's like often a bunch of suspicious dudes who are definitely sexualizing and harassing their trans women patients um, and then are creating these like weird diagnostic criteria based on that right it's like six degrees uh you know six degrees of kevin bacon actually here is like six degrees of ray blanchard and his idea of autogynephilia like the most legitimate clinicians who get you know, all the choice positions are like not that far away from that, you know, weirdo guy who's, you know, sexual fantasy life, um, you know, which normally there would be nothing wrong with, except in this case, he's used it to wage like a war against trans women. You know, it's like, this is the history of gender identity disorder. It's not a very good concept. It never worked very well. It was so obvious to everyone that everyone is just engaging in a collective lie when they use it. The patients come in and just say whatever they need to say. And the clinicians are like, oh, I'm so relieved that you fit the diagnostic criteria because they're bizarre. They're 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 prejudicial. They're fantastical. They're hard to trust. And then this court is like, Ah, beautiful. Right. And it's just like, wow, you know, maybe maybe gender identity disorder was a great you know, opportunity for us to think about how diagnostic criteria are, are not just absurd or unempirical, but are specifically designed to police and harm people. They don't really serve any other and to, and to allow the state to withdraw care. And, right. and to and to ban care and to make it impossible to get access to resources uh, that you need to live, you know. And so it's right. just like, again, yikes, 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 yikes. But, you know, <laughs> they really 
it's just so fascinating when the powers that be are like, I will show you everything about how I got to where I got to. And I will not, I will not withhold any of my malice, but I will pass it off as like really cool and benevolent. Well said. (laughs) Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think one of the things that's frustrating here too, is if you think about this from, let's say like a sort of purely disability perspective, right. And we're, we're thinking about what's actually being affirmed here. The validity of disabled identity being mediated through taxonomy, right, through the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. which comes from the medical authority of a physician, which in the United States is mediated by the health finance system. It's enshrining that as a, a primary identifier of a verifiably true disabled identity. So this is in no That's way... That's how you get your civil rights. Right, yeah. yeah. So this is in no way, you know, I think the kind of... I, I I appreciate uh, Doran Dorfman. He sent me a paper that he's he's working on that's not published yet. That's talking about this legal strategy of disability frame extension, which is what this is, um, which is the idea of sort of trying to push the boundaries of disability to win cases where people are being deprived of their their rights and sort of expand the definition of disability through litigation. But you know, mm. I, and I hadn't thought about it this way until I was reading his paper and he was talking about, you know, this, this at the same time, these frame extensions, because they're so often hinged on basically proving that, oh, this pathology or this diagnostic category can qualify as an impairment, proving the impairment, um, which is the kind of thing that like hinges on whether or not your disability claim is going to be successful, basically means that only people with a diagnosis are really the ones that deserve like protections under the ADA is what this decision says also, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is also setting, um, you know, a kind of not just the immediate precedent of let's, let's include this one diagnostic category. It has these uh, contextual reverberations that are very messy and this kind of legal strategy is very messy because it plays with, um, I think, concepts that the U.S. federal government isn't totally clear how it feels about, which is like whether or not disability is socially constructed or medically constructed. And to sort of draw, you know, the the sort of parallel, I guess, to like what we've been talking about this whole time, right? Like this is obviously now like sort of drawing trans identity and the, the sort of categories that govern trans care into this debate as well. And this is something that like might not be good. I mean, I think it's really hard to say whether or not it's a good thing to be enfranchised into, um, you know, a legal administrative framework that is designed to work for bosses, too, because a big thing about the ADA is that the way that it was designed was really to come out favorably to the employer, to the subjector, the oppressor, the prison warden. Um, these law, The law as it was designed was not necessarily designed to... Um, definitely benefit the person who's making the ADA claim. And so what we have here is I think, you know, it's it's, it's very tempting for people to say that, um, you know, oh, this is great. This is going to mean this like moment of unity where like disabled people and trans people are going to come together and, and fight to protect the ADA. And uh, we've seen a lot of people even posting to that effect, like, you know, uh-huh. trans women have like posted like, oh, wow, look at this court decision. Feel complicated <laughs> for American progress <laughs> for American progress. <laughs> and um, certain people uh, reply like, OK, great. Now you have to help us fight in Congress next time this law is like threatened. And it's like, OK, great. Maybe the all of us should sit down and like question like how OK we are fundamentally with this legal framework. And maybe um, this isn't like the time for us to be sort of like working together to defend the ADA, but fundamentally pushing for things much further than that, that go beyond um, these kind of frameworks that only 
place people as having valuable claims if they are productively valuable in the economy as workers. I mean, I just feel so much these days, like the sort of watch, the, 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 I just feel like the phrase for neoliberal America, obviously it's, it's a phrase that goes way back though, is that like, hey, the state is going to just intrude and absolutely do whatever it wants with you. Uh, and it's going to dispossess you and it's going to harm you. But then you can, if you want, you could try to buy your, some of your body back from the state. And like sometimes, you know, that goes on sale. And like the court is like, hey, I have a discount code, you know, you know, be sure to mention uh, fourth district, you know, uh, at, at checkout. And like, maybe you'll get a little bit, little bit of that bodily autonomy back. And it's like, no, I think we just don't accept those terms because also who is, who is the first person, you know, doing harm here? It's the state. Right. And I just, mm-hmm. I really worry that, you know, again, it's like, of course, harm reduction is a real thing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really hope that, you know, the outcome of this case means some amelioration of of Keisha Williams's experience. But again, it's not lost on me that if she simply had never been imprisoned in the first place, that, you know, none of this would have happened. And then, you know, more broadly, you know, what are all the things that the state, you know, might have been underwriting or supporting instead of paying the immense expense to to lock her up? And I, and I also worry that like as urgent, as urgent as it is, right, to address the institutional planned and intentional sexual assault of trans women in prisons due to these actually just tautological policies like the the decision quotes the the prison's policy and it's like you know someone is male if they have a male body like it's just like literally made up they're like a a female person is a person with female genitals it's like that's like okay you just failed intro to logic but whatever um (laughs) Mm -hmm. wouldn't be the first time policy um but it's like i really i really worry that part of part of part of sort of the you know the outcome of decisions like this is like okay maybe we will get to a place in the next few years where like these weird prison policies that make like genital determinations about people are like well they won't they can't be rescinded because like prisons are sex segregated so like what are you going to do right like the general uh, the general alternative to that model of um, deliberately exposing trans women to sexual assault is to torture them by putting them in solitary confinement. And it's just like, again, we can't reform our way out of this scenario. And so it's like that aspect of this this jurisprudence really worries me too, because again, I just feel like the, you know, the big um, mission accomplished energy of like um, of LGBT activism in particular, right? Which is always like, well, we did it, folks. It's always George Bush the second, you know, like landing that plane on the aircraft carrier every day. Like, I just worry that also that means that there's not going to be, you know, it's just like people are going to be like, well, but like, you know, a good thing happened. And also like the ADA, you know, and it's like those become sort of shorthand, I think sometimes too. And I don't know. I mean, I'm just being a pessimist right now, but like, what else am I doing here? But yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that this is really the sort of perfect place to leave it. And and it leaves me actually thinking of this question that Jasbir Poir uh, leaves mm. you with in her definition of disability that's actually in the first ever edition of Transgender Studies Quarterly, where, you know, yeah. she's walking through a lot of the things that we've talked about. And she says, um, 
How might we assemble trans and disabilities such that they do not strive to manifest wholeness or to invest in the self as coherent and thereby reproduce liberal norms of being? And I think that, you know, this is this is like the important question moving forward. How do we come together to defend the ADA from the Senate? You know, (laughs) whatever. But Jules, thank you so much for, uh, you know, joining us, joining us as a collaborator panel member. First episode. What a glorious first experience, but you know, I, maybe this is a little awkward to say on air, but I just, I just want to double check before we wrap up. Like, so do we like the ADA? I just, I was having a little bit of a hard time figuring out my takeaway from this conversation. Um, no, just kidding. This was truly what <laughs> of a really enlivening um, way to think about this. And I just feel grateful, you know, to be a part of this community of folks who are who are really doing something that I think is really hard to do these days, which is to push ourselves um, to, to think, to outthink the emergencies that we're living through, right? And not to accept things that are handed to us as the final word, um, and not also just to sort of turn away from them in exhaustion or resignation, which like, you know, some days you got it, I get it. But I think it's so important to be like, okay, like, let's make sure we've digested why this doesn't work, why we don't accept it. Um, And then like, you know, as you just did bringing up, you know, that quote from Jaspir, like, yeah, what, what's the horizon that we're working uh, on collectively? Because I think clearly, clearly we all have um, have a different way forward that's going to be a lot more glorious than than the silliness that we're um, that we were that we were consigned to by Jesse Helms, who will just yes. simply never be on my um, proverbial Santa good kids list, but. Anyways, that was a very long way of saying thank you for having yeah. me. Um, I'm excited to to keep talking and yeah, to keep Us thinking too. with you all. Absolutely. No, this, is, this is so cool. I'm, I'm so excited. Honestly, you know, saying fuck you to Jesse Helms is the perfect way actually to end this episode. Um, it's good for your blood pressure. Exactly. And to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library. And tell everyone how excited you are that Jules and Abby are joining the show. Exactly. And follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, will catch you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you later next week. As always... Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. <laughs>